0: From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. I am here with Mel Massengale. Mel, thanks for coming on the podcast. (laughs) Don't you work for me? I know. Well, I wasn't going to say that part, but then I waited and I was like,
1: um... Is he going to say hi, or should I <laughs> yeah. thank him for well, coming <clears throat> on his own podcast? Hello there. <laughs> thanks thanks for having me today, Michael. I appreciate it. I'm a big listener, first-time listener, uh, first-time caller, long-time listener. We can take care of autographs after. That'll work. <laughs>
0: um, okay, so you delivered a good lecture recently about demoralization in the church, and I'm sure that there are other pastors and church leaders listening to this podcast who might benefit from hearing more of what you said. So let's start out by painting a picture of what demoralization looks like in a church. What are some symptoms that a pastor can look for in diagnosing whether or not his congregation is demoralized? <clears throat> well,
1: that's a good question. Um, and really until recently, I hadn't even thought about uh, the phenomenon we see in our churches as demoralization. Um, and I had somebody else use that word with me and it was like the light bulb went on I was like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what churches are dealing with. Because it's easy for pastors to characterize the lack of service, because every church I know just about, um, they're saying, okay, we're 70% of attendance, but we're 35% of our volunteers, and it's like, uh, wait a second, (laughs) you know, um, something's wrong there. Um, Some churches are back to full capacity, you know, some of the smaller churches I know especially maybe are, are back to full attendance, but... Virtually none of the churches I know um, are back to where they were pre-COVID on volunteers, on people serving. And it's easy to chalk it up to, well, people are bad or people are lazy or they don't love Jesus enough. But I don't really don't think that's what it is because we have people in our church that are, are tending again, but they're just not serving. And so the question is, why aren't they serving? And to me, the answer comes back to, man, the people are demoralized. So we don't think about that in the context of church much because we're all supposed to love Jesus and... Our hearts are supposed to be right and you know, all those kind of things. We're never supposed to deal with any kind of um slowdown mentally or emotionally, anything like that. Um, but if you think about it in terms of other groups like um like in in the military, they'll talk about the morale of their soldiers, and the morale of their soldiers has a direct impact on their performance. Um sports teams. The morale of the sports team impacts their performance on the field even in workplaces secular workplaces we think about this and it's like man if if the company has good morale if people are excited about what they're doing uh, they're going to show up to work early and they're going to leave late and they don't mind giving extra hours and they don't mind right they're going to go above and beyond and so when we put that in church context um it really answers a lot of the questions for me, like, okay, why aren't people, why are people that were attending twice a month before COVID now attending once every six weeks? Right. You know, why are, why are people who were serving three times a month before gladly, right? Now they're not even on our teams. And I really do think it comes back to this idea that they're demoralized. They're not depressed. Um, but this idea of demoralization, it's this, it's this idea that we've lost some hope. It's hard for us to see uh, a preferred future and and as a result, we're kind of breathing in and out. We're living day to day. We're just we're not making long-term plans for a lot of stuff. We're just if I can just get through this. That's how a lot of people are functioning. And it's important for us as pastors to see that because number 1, my leaders feel that way. I mean, I feel that way to some degree, but our leaders feel that way and our people feel that way. And so if we can identify what that What that is, it makes it easier for us to speak into that and to encourage them and to try to have an antidote for that if we can.
0: Yeah, and this really is a stroke of brilliance because, I mean, I'm one of the people who've been guilty of looking at others and thinking, well, they're just, they're not, they're just lazy. They're not bad. They're not doing their job. (laughs) Like they're not working hard enough. Um, But the way you treat a demoralized person is not the same way you treat a lazy person. Correct. And if you treat a demoralized person as if they are lazy, that's just going to compound the problem. Yeah, it's going to push them even further. And I think that, you know, when we were going through the midst of COVID and everything was happening... I had a sense that there was going to be some kind of lingering effect of this, but I did not peg it as demoralization. I, had, I mm-hmm. didn't have that. That term wasn't even on my radar. Yeah. And then whenever I heard that, I was like, that's right. Yeah. That's true. That's what this is. And you see it over and over again. And like you said, in the military and in battles and all these things, like protecting morale is crucial because if you lose that,
1: then you lose a lot of the punch behind what you were doing. And yeah. Well, and, and it's even, it's even, um, we see it in the workplace because how many times have, I mean, I've had conversations with people. We've got people in our church, they can't find employees. And they're like, what in the world is going on? Like, I can't find people. Like, we're having to cut our hours and we're having to, you know, close on certain days of the week because we don't have enough employees. So, what's the answer to that? They're not on unemployment. That stuff ended a long time ago. Um, you know, all the COVID relief. But the answer is they're, Demoralized, right? People are, more people are living in their parents' basements than ever before. I read an article this morning about the fact that, um, that people that are in their seventies and a little younger, their, um, their retirement is threatened because all of their 18 to 27 year old kids are moving back into their house and they're living off their, so now their, their retirement's threatened because they're taking care of. And so again, it's this compounding cascading issue, um, that we don't even really think about as an issue.
0: Yeah. So what is your sense about what causes this kind of demoralization? Because I have a feeling that it's, it's heavily related to, if not directly related to national politics. Um, and, and and I say national politics specifically, but you could probably even broaden that out to say just like global issues or national Mm -hmm. issues, because people are looking at these, these really broad scale issues and they're thinking, well, there's nothing I can do about that. That's beyond my control. The thing about COVID that's unique is that It is a, it was a global issue that reached down to your individual doorstep and people came, your governor said to you, you can't go to work anymore for until, until we tell you, you can. And what I think what that did was it, it took whatever people, you know, before COVID, I knew a lot of people who were always into national politics, but we had a name for those kind of people. We called them current events junkies. Like that's kind of the, the the slang term for that. Mm -hmm. So there was a slang term for that because not everybody was doing it. Not everybody was always thinking about that. And then with COVID, because how, how it took a global problem and it individuated it, it just wrapped everybody up. And, yep. and I don't know if they're just stuck there or if that sense of loss of control is permeating into domains of their life that it shouldn't be anyway. Um, do you think that, that that those global national problems is the cause of this demoralization in the local church?
1: I think it's part of it. Um, I think it contributes to it. I think um, I think our um, our access, our easy access to all the global news and things like that, is probably not helpful um, because there are people that we just have an IV drip of that all the time, a constant news flow. And most of the news is bad. Most of it is not good. And so when we constantly see all this bad news in the world and we're not, we're not pushing that back with the gospel. So we're feeding ourselves a steady stream of bad news, but our people are starving for the gospel. Um, you know, they, they might come to church, but they're not feeding themselves very well. And so as a result, um, they're malnourished and what they're getting is junk food. And so they don't have, they don't have the fortitude to push back and go, okay, wait a second. Um, I know where my hope is, you know? And cause like I said, everything we hear is bad. It's COVID's on the rise again and more cases and monkeypox, and global recession. And it's all this stuff that that's ultimately what causes people to be demoralized is this lack of hope where it's like, man, do, is this going to get any better? Um, and that's what started during COVID. You know, this this lockdowns and all these kind of things. And, you know, it just waned on and on and on. It just kept going. And people, I think that's when people started losing hope. But then it just started com- compounding, you know, piling on. And so, yeah, I do think that um, what we see in our news feeds uh, impacts the local church for sure.
0: Yeah, and it's striking to me how fast this process happens. So yeah. just last night, um, there was a raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. And yeah. I'm bringing that up for a specific reason. I check in pretty regularly. I don't watch it all the time, but I check in with a, a live YouTube podcast called Timcast IRL. It's the reporter, Tim Poole. He just brings people on and talks about stuff. Mm-hmm. He normally averages around 30,000 viewers per live stream, like concurrent viewers. And this, this raid happened an hour before his show went live and he had double his viewership. And I can't help but think that it's associated with what yeah. had just happened. And so this is, we almost are tuned into the pulse of these national problems in mm-hmm. real time. Yeah. And so people are living two different lives they're living their national life. They're living their online life. They're living their global life. And they're also trying to live in their neighborhood and in their local community. And that to me, that strikes me as incredibly dangerous. Just not, well, for instance, if we're, if what happened in Florida last night is enough to, to take the steam out of our engine or take the wind out of our sails to where we're unwilling to look at the local needs of our community Mm Mm-hmm. Then we're going to end up with problems in our local community that didn't have to be there. And that's just going to snowball. And so I don't know. I don't really have a question in that. It's just, it struck me how quickly just in in the span of an hour that news had disseminated and there was an actual real time effect.
1: Well, there used to be there. I mean, there is a saying that says all politics are local. People only care about politics as much as it impacts them personally for the most part. That's why. In national elections, people vote primarily based on their pocketbooks. You know, if the economy is good and strong and things are going well, that makes a big difference. If the economy is trashed, then they're going to vote that way. But what we experience in our world right now makes us believe everything is local. Um, and it's not. I mean, some things are. You know, if you saw the story about um, COVID in um, December of 2019, you would have been going, like a lot of people like oh that's a that's a far east problem that's not right. a us problem but it became a local problem but there's a whole bunch of things that we see on the news that they're telling us this is important to you and it's really not but we adopt it and and it's it's like what you said it's easy for us to go oh these are issues that really really matter to me and it's like but but does it matter to you really um and those take the place of some of the things that should be occupying places of importance in our heart. Um, And so as a result, you know, we can't serve two masters, right?
0: Do you have any advice for people um, on how to shatter that illusion? People, even maybe even pastors who get caught up in it, who uh, maybe unknowingly are just like they drift towards those kinds of issues Mm -hmm. and then they get stuck in it and then they start to feel a little bit demoralized. I mean, I can think of all sorts of reasons why the events of last night would demoralize people if they were watching that And, and knowing, you know, just the implications of that sort of thing on the possibility of becoming a local problem. Um, but, but you can't dwell on that and yeah. also
1: effectively pastor a church. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, yeah. Cause, um, I've got to, I've got to monitor my heart really well because my heart, um, sets the tone for our congregation. Um, my level of faith or lack of faith, or, you know, if I'm demoralized, I am setting the tone for our congregation and for our staff and for our leaders. Um, so I've got to monitor my heart really, really closely because it's, it's kind of setting a course in a lot of ways. So it's important for pastors to keep an eye on that. And I think it's easy for us to drift, um, if we're not careful and I would, man, one of the best things I did is when I, I limited my Facebook, um, usage, at one point I realized like, and I might've said this on one of our podcasts, but I realized I was stopped at a stoplight and I pulled up Facebook on my phone and yeah. it was like, oh, holy crap. Like yeah. I might have a problem, right? Like, yeah. And so I deleted it. Uh, I can only get on, on my laptop. So I hardly ever get on. I mean, like every other week or something, I'll get on. Um, I deleted Twitter. I mean, so social media is very limited for me right now and it's better for my heart. So that might be dramatic for some people, but I would say pastors, take a look at that. That might be something that's good for you. Maybe you need to limit some access to your people. You know, you don't need to see every problem they have, everything they say. Um, you know, how did pastors lead and pastor fifty years ago? Well, mm-hmm. they just love their people and they didn't know every single thing that happened. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that we bury our heads in the sand either. We need to know what's going on in our world. Uh, we need to be able to speak to the culture. You know in, in our world and in our church but at the same time we don't need to be dominated by it did
0: you have to explain to the congregation or just people that you knew whenever you got away from facebook did you did you feel like you had to have some follow-up with them like hey this is what i'm doing this is why i'm doing it if you don't if i'm not responding to your comments or your likes or your posts or whatever that's
1: why some i mean initially i did i, I mentioned something from the platform but um but I honestly just don't care that much if they get upset because I don't respond to a Facebook message or comment. Um, then it's like well you're not trying very hard. If you n- tried to get a hold of me and all you did was send me a Facebook message, <laughs> you did not try very hard. Um, you could have sent me an email from the website. You could have you know called the church. There's a whole bunch of ways to get a hold of me. So no, I didn't. I honestly did not care that much about that. And
0: you didn't really get any blowback either, right? Like nah. people just people seem to not care as much as you did. And right. so like that's something that I think is useful for pastors to know who've maybe been hesitant to do it yeah. because they're like, well, what if so and so thinks I'm ignoring them? Well, probably they'll just come talk to you, or they'll send you a text, or they'll they'll resort to a more intimate form of communication, which they should be doing anyway. They should, or they'll just
1: leave your church quietly and trash you while they leave. Yeah. That pastor wouldn't even talk to me. I, I Facebook messaged him five times and he never responded. So, uh, that, but that's okay too.
0: So, taking this back to the at the level of church leadership and yeah. um, volunteer um, participation, let's say. How do you tell the difference between someone who's demoralized and someone who
1: is just a bad employee? (laughs) Well, um, if you're leading someone and you're asking those questions, you probably had an idea before this stuff happened if they were a bad employee or not. And so if if you still have that feeling, they're probably just a bad employee. Um, if you had somebody that was on the right track and doing the good, the right things and doing things well, and then there was a a hard left turn, that's where I would say they're probably demoralized. Um, and you probably need to give them some grace. You probably need to pastor them through that, um, help them recognize that. And to me, the, the number one thing for demoralization is helping them see that there is a hope, helping them see that there is a future. And, um, I think, I think. In some ways, bold leadership is going to be better in this because pastors can paint a picture. I mean, pastors should be visionaries. They should, at least to some degree. Some pastors are better at that than others, but a pastor should be able to paint a picture for a desired future for individuals and for a church and say, "Hey, here's where we're going. Here's what God's calling us to do." And I might not know. Well, I might not know all the details, but here's what I see. Um, And culture is hard to shift. So once you've got a culture of demoralization in the water, it takes a while to get that out of the water. And so uh, depending on how far that's settled into your church, it it might take a little longer to get it out, but it can with just some hard work. Yeah. So pastors should expect to have to be patient through this. So even if they
0: didn't do anything wrong before covid like, they could be having A-plus leadership right now, and mm-hmm. it's still going to take some time. And so they should yeah. be patient, and they should they should recognize the fact that because they're not seeing immediate results doesn't mean that they're walking in the wrong direction. And so they need to be judicious 100%. about how they think about that.
1: Yeah, because I know if, if, if there are pastors that are listening to this that are wired at all like I am, it was easy to look at – where did everybody go? What am I doing wrong? What did I do? Did I, did I offend people? Maybe they were hurt and they were just looking for an excuse. And so it's easy for me to default to the worst possible, um, you know, implication for people and go, well, um, they didn't like me or they were upset with me or, but, Really, for the most part, a lot of these people are just demoralized and it has nothing to do with the leader or the pastor. It has everything to do with how these people feel in their own hearts. And so that even helps us shift a little bit to be able to approach them differently. And again, just pastor them and love them. And, um, man um, this, uh, oh, we're, we're in the month of August as we record this, but, um. I had somebody this last weekend who had not been at church since before COVID, and I had gently been prodding them along the way, encouraging them, calling them once in a while, texting them, "Man, I miss you guys. I love you." And they finally came back to church, and it's like, what in the world took you yeah, know two yeah. and a half years for you to come back to church? Um, but they were demoralized, and I just had to encourage them and love them, and um, and that's what it's going to take. and That stuff's hard, man. But that's part of our job as the pastors is we leave the 99, right? We leave the 99 and we go find the one. And um, it doesn't say if the one left because they were mad or the one left because whatever the reason is. If one's left, we go find them. We track them down. We love on them.
0: Yeah. And I, I can't help but think that some of this is about people needing to rediscover why they were doing something. Like, yeah. I, when I think about demoralization, I think about the question, well, why am I even doing this anyway? Yep. And I, that seems to be like one of the feature questions that comes forward whenever you're in the midst of demoralization. And so sometimes you, know, you can do what you can to remind people of why they're doing things, but sometimes mm-hmm. that is a self-searching process. And that is something that you know, it does take a little bit of time for people to remember who they were before they were demoralized. And that's some of that is independent of the, of the leadership.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's really important too. in demoralization in the midst of that, it's easy to isolate yourselves. Um, Even as for pastors, uh, there was a lot of pastors that I lost relationship with during COVID and it wasn't because they didn't like me. It was because they were just demoralized. So they weren't returning calls or texts or whatever it was. They were isolating and our people are doing the same thing. So that's really important for us to remind people the importance of serving because it's not about serving the church it really is about being in community that i'm serving alongside people that are going to, you know, this is going to help me in my relationships. I'm going to get to know people better. Um, but even in the context of groups, like, man, we need community now more than ever because community will help battle that demoralization.
0: Yeah. So I don't think it's shameful to openly admit your own demoralization so long. And I don't know if what, what do you think about this, but is should you be judicious about who you speak to about it or should it? Cause what the, my next question is, I'm going to, I'm going to ask if we can just tell everyone about the times that we've been demoralized, maybe not specifically, yeah. but, um, and kind of how you personally handled that. But first, yeah. are you judicious about who you talk? Yeah, to you it?
1: probably have to be because, um, the, the truth is 1% of your church doesn't like you and you, you don't want to give them any more ammo than they already have. So, Um, so yeah, I would probably be somewhat judicious because there's some people I can be totally transparent with. I can tell them everything that's going on and they're going to love me. They're going to support me. They're going to help me. And then there's some people I can be honest with, but I'm not going to be totally transparent with, right? Like, I'm not going to tell them everything that's going on in my life, but I'm going to tell them, man, this has been hard. It's been a hard season. And they can handle that level of information, and that's fine. And then there's some people I'm not going to tell them anything. I'm going to be like, man, God is good. Everything's great. My life is awesome. I feel good, right? Um, And so, yeah, I think you do have to be judicious about that to some degree. Yeah. So what –
0: what um what are some of the best ways? And I want to get into the points that yeah, you laid yeah. out and I want to unpack those more. But before we do that, and this might overlap with it, yeah. um, what are some of the ways that you've handled your own, if you've had like moments of demoralization, what are some of the most effective coping strategies that you've found? Um, you know, and I don't, when people hear the word coping, they think like, oh, well, you know, it's just learning to deal with it or whatever. But there's mm-hmm. a lot of wisdom in, in, in staying at a, at a reasonably healthy spot in the midst of a trial rather than just falling off the cliff. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's it, we shouldn't discount the term coping. We shouldn't discount the people think, Oh, coping. I'm just, I'm staying where I'm at. I'm just, I'm just staying afloat, but sometimes staying afloat is actually really good. Whenever your other alternative is falling to rock bottom.
1: When you've done all you can to stand, stand, right? Right, right. So lose ground. So what have you done to kind of, uh, deal with that? um, I think we've talked about this a little in the past, but, um, the best time to be ready for, um, bad seasons in your life to get ready is before the bad seasons come, right? Like Noah built the ark before the rain started. And so for us, it's, inc- it's important to start healthy rhythms before bad seasons come into your life. Um, and so like, I, I encourage our teams to go to a counselor if they would like. And so I see a Christian counselor about every four or five, six weeks. Um, we'll just sit down and talk. And sometimes we don't have much to talk about, but sometimes something's happened. And I'm like, I need to unload this. I need to talk to somebody who's not an employee or not. I'm not their pastor. I'm not married to them. You know, somebody that's outside of my circle and that's really important. And so whatever the healthy rhythms are for you, establish them early on and continue them even when you start to feel like you don't want to continue them and that demoralization when it comes, which it inevitably will, um, you got to continue those healthy rhythms because that's what's going to help you maintain some equilibrium.
0: Yeah. I love the term rhythm there because it implies like discipline. And mm-hmm. so you don't have to stay motivated necessarily in order to exercise yeah. a discipline because Absolutely. you've trained yourself, you know, it is a pa- it becomes like a path of least resistance. It becomes the like you said, a rhythm. Mm-hmm. And so when you're in those moments where you're really demoralized you can still exercise those things and it it happens to be the case that if you exercise those things those things will also pull you back up out of demoralization even though you don't feel motivated to do them yeah so that's all really good speaking of of preparing ahead of time um what if let's just play pessimist and say that we are living in a world where um you know there are a series of Future black swan events coming, or events that could demoralize people at the level of the local church that are are happening maybe on a level that we can't control. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there anything that you can do from the platform to prepare your congregation for a world like that and to kind of protect against? Because you know, well, COVID was a black swan event because nobody saw it coming. It doesn't mean that all that that future ones have to be like that. I mean, we can anticipate those things. We can prepare for them. We can train for them. What can you do? What could a pastor do from his platform to prepare his congregation? Because we talked a little bit about seeing a counselor and kind of the one-on-one thing. Mm -hmm. Is is he hopeless from the position of the pulpit, or is there something that he can do to kind of bolster them and and get them ready in case there's something coming?
1: I think uh, one of the most important things pastors can do during uh, turbulent seasons is to... um, to remind our congregations that, um, and it sounds so churchy and so pastoral to say it, but like God is in control. Like God saw this, he knew this was going to happen and God is in control. Um, and if we go either way too far, it's, it's bad for our church. If we pretend like, these issues in our world don't, won't affect us at all. We're good. You know, the economic, the economy is not going to impact us. We're great. And it's like, well, no, the economy might impact us, but even if it does, God's still in control. And you could go the other way and say, okay, we're in trouble. We're all building bunkers. You know, we're all, I bought a piece of property. We're going to build a commune. We're going to get away from this world, you know, whatever. That's the opposite. But I think just being steady through that pastors, just being a, a, a place of calm, um, you know, my, my father-in-law passed away uh, a few weeks ago and, um, when I got to Texas, my wife was already there with her family. And so I got there and one of the most important things I could do for them is just try to be a calming presence for them. Cause there was so much chaos, so much hurt, so much pain and just being able to show up and tell them it's going to be okay. Um, I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's going to be all right. We're going to get through this. And I think that's where sometimes pastors just need to put on put on your dad hat. You know, you're the mom or you're the dad of that church. You need, just need to say, it's going to be all right. I know you're scared. I know you're nervous. We're going to be okay.
0: Yeah, that really strikes at the heart of the matter because if you remind them that God's in control – I think that that would help preserve against demoralization because the feature of demoralization is loss of control Absolutely. on the individual level. Yeah. So it's like, if I can't control anything, well, then who's in control? Right. And if the answer is a, a corrupt government, well, then there's
1: lots of reasons to be demoralized. But if the answer we're not is say, God... We're not saying the government is corrupt, by the way, because I'm sure the NSA is listening. So
0: Oh, yeah. They're they're probably fans. But yeah, you're right.
1: <laughs> uh, but if, if we can help people stay anchored in their hope in God, then it helps... Provide a better future. It helps provide some hope that hey, we're going to be okay. We got this. Um, God's got this. So yeah, that's definitely important. So this is more of a
0: <clears throat> like a nuts and bolts question when it comes to leading a church. <clears throat> leading a church. Um, In my role as production director, I'm guilty of automating many tasks, which have been difficult to motivate volunteers to fill each weekend, but I remain philosophically open as to whether or not such automation is a good idea. Yeah. And so should churches who are thinking about trying to consolidate volunteer roles or eliminating them entirely until things pick back up, should they push forward with something like that or should, what should they do? How should they view such a thing?
1: I think if they can, it's probably a good idea. Because um, you're dealing with this this tension between um, excellence, or you know, pro- providing a um, a service that people expect or would like versus hey we can we can do it not as well because we're going to get rid of this program or we're going to get rid of this visual or this whatever it is uh, by not automating something and so that's the trade off and every church has to decide is that worth it for us. Um, and for us, we've made the decision to say, yeah, we are going to automate some things because now we can do it with fewer people. And that allows us to be a little leaner than we were before. And uh, but the downside is that w- we need fewer people. And that means that there are some people that maybe want to serve that wouldn't be able to. And so I think if we, if we uh, maintain the flexibility to be able to onboard people, qualified people when, when we can, then we're good.
0: Yeah. As long as you're using automation as a tool to get you through the lean times and with maybe with an eye for, okay, what we're never going to do is allow automation uh, to cause us to reject someone who wants to serve right. someone who's really got a servant's heart who really wants to step up and be a part of serving the church. We're not going to tell that person, well, sorry, well, we, know, don't we, we don't need you. We don't need you. Yeah. So we prioritize the person. We prioritize the people. Yeah. Um, and we use automation to fill the gaps. Yeah. If that makes 100%. sense. And it's, you know, you hear the word automation for pastors that m- maybe are considering doing this. You really should chase that down. It's not that expensive to do and it's not that hard to do. Yeah. Um, it, it there is a learning curve. Like when you first start looking at these systems, like Ableton and all the rest, it's going to, you're going to, it's going to look like hieroglyphs. You're Mm -hmm. going to think it's just a different language, but you know, take a few weeks, take a month, just study it, dig into it, and Bit by bit piece by piece I mean, I know that's how how we've done it here is we've just been learning as we go and getting yeah. more efficient and getting better at it And it's become more stable. It's become more optimized and you know It is a process but it's it has it pays off and it has nice dividends when it comes to the lean times And it, it helps prevent you from getting too stressed, you know in, in the presence of the people who you're trying to serve. Yeah okay, so Let's talk through each of your points from the lecture that you delivered. I don't actually have them in my notes, and I want to get them right. So if you can just go point by point, and we'll talk
1: through. Yeah, and these were in no particular order. It was just as I was thinking through these and and praying about them. Uh, The first one was remember who you are um, because uh, not just – well, every identity we have, whether it's as a pastor or leader or dad or mom or whatever it is, all those identities come with a different set of values or value system to some degree. Like as, as a pastor, there's certain things that are expected of me. There's certain things that I value and behavior and actions and all those kind of things. Um, and, and it's easy when I'm demoralized to forget about those things. Um, like, okay, we've got to do this. Well, I'm, I'm a dad, I've got to do this. So, um, but I forget about, you know, what you mentioned earlier, like, why do I do that? Well, why do I pastor? and Why do I, why am I a dad? Well, it's because my girls and I love them and I'm for them. And if my heart is not healthy, then I'm not leading them well. And so remembering who I am, remembering, um, you know, the values associated with that is really important mm-hmm. that, that, you know, I'm a, I'm a son of God. And what does that look like if I am demoralized? What does that mean for me? What are the implications for me and for others?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's super important because like when you go through something like the
1: last few years,
0: it could be really easy to slip into a different identity, like slip into the identity of oppressed or slip into the identity of citizen of a formerly free country. You know, Mm -hmm. there's lots of people who are kind of thinking like that, like that's who I am now. And no, that's not who you are. Yeah. That's it, it. You know, if you tell yourself that that's who you are, you're going to start acting that out and you're going to live that out and you're going to deal with all the negative consequences of that. But if you remind yourself who you are transcendently in Christ right. and who you are, you know, it, it doesn't change the fact that COVID didn't change the fact that you're a dad yeah, and it do, didn't change your responsibilities and your obligations and the joys of it either. Mm-hmm. And and remembering all of that and focusing on those things, I think is a way to preserve a little bit of, of uh, stability, and mm-hmm. I, I want to use the word normalcy, but you know, we can talk about that too. Like, even that's it's kind of a, a rabbit trail, but it's it might be one worth exploring. You've had a lot of people come up to you and say, Well, this is the new normal, this is what we have to get used to. Um, do you bristle at that? Is that, or how yeah, do you to feel?
1: some degree, and I think there are some things that are just fundamentally changed, you know, after COVID, um, but. The, the the lack of desire to get back to where we were before um, and I'm not talking about some like um, you know some idealistic kind of like oh everything was great and perfect before but I just mean get back to the confidence people had before in the world we lived in and you know get back to the place where people could live a normal life and weren't locked down or weren't terrified of you know different things Sicknesses or illnesses or disease or whatever it was, because we still see that in our world. Um, I, I think that the lack of desire to get back there is a problem, and mm-hmm. that's where I, I want people to understand: Hey, we can get, we can have a normal, a new normal that looks a lot like the old normal. <laughs> um, and uh, and I, I just think it's important for us to for us to push back on yeah. that idea
0: a little well, bit. P- pushing back on it, what it does is it helps remind people that the most critical pieces that were in place that allowed for that normal to begin with are still there. Mm-hmm. Jesus is still God. We're yeah. still living in the world that we lived in before in terms of creation. Like yeah. it's it, it's not a different creation. It's not it's not like we've slipped into a different dimension and right. this is one where there's no hope and so many of these things that are demoralizing people are they are phantoms at this point. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are many people who are still terrified of COVID and Mm -hmm. there's just no reason to be anymore unless you're just desperately infirm and it presents uh, as great a threat to you as the common cold would. Yeah, And we we just know that now. There Mm -hmm. was a point where we didn't know that. There was a point where lots of people were scared.
1: Yeah. Yeah. March 2020, we had no idea. That's why we closed our doors because we were imagining the worst case scenario, but you know, what, what science has shown us is that, um, it is not COVID is not what we thought it was in March of 2020. And the fact that we are, that there are some people in our culture that still are living and with that as a reality, it, it's concerning for me and mm-hmm. and not because they're not coming to church, but it's because, um, they, they're seeing the world in a way that doesn't feel true or authentic. Right. Yeah. So
0: yeah, they're they're adhering to a lie and they're reacting to the lie, and that's yeah. that's never good. So let's talk about the next point.
1: Um, stop avoiding and start moving. So when I'm demoralized, um, you know, I talk to the staff about this. My demoralization does not look like exactly like other people's might, but I think we've all had days, bad days, where it was like, I don't want to get out of this bed. I'm I'm pulling the covers over my head. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to. I don't want to. I want to disengage. And so my demoralization doesn't look exactly like that. But I think all of our versions of demoralization look like that in some way or another, where it's like, I want to hide. I want to ignore what's going on. I don't want to do anything. um, I want to turn off my brain. I'm going to Netflix, you know, an entire series, you know, four seasons of shows I'm watching today, Mm. uh, whatever it might be. And it's easy for us to stop any momentum and forward movement. And this is where it kind of goes back to the last thing where we talked about remembering who you are. Well, if I know, hey, I'm a dad, and if I'm not progressing, if I'm not moving forward, if I'm not getting better, it's got implications for my girls. It's got implications for my wife, my church, whatever it is. That helps. But this is where we've just got to be – our resiliency needs to be robust enough where we can say, okay, I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to take a moment. I'm, I can feel bad for myself if I want to, but I'm not going to stay here. I'm not going to spend a day this way. And this is where we have to stop avoiding and start moving and like get going, do something. Uh, and so like for me, it's easy for me to sit in my basement and watch TV. You know, if I'm, if I'm feeling down, if I'm discouraged about something, um, but if I do that all day long, I'm going to be in trouble because, mm-hmm. um, that's just, that's going to be unhealthy for my soul. So just getting out and working on my Jeep, like that helps my heart because I'm, at least I'm producing something. I'm yeah. doing something that is, that is showing progress and those little incremental steps of progress in my life help remind me how important it is to, to see that. Cause there is, there is the, um, the, the chemical reactions in us whenever we see progress. Right. And Mm -hmm. there's the reward system that says, Hey, Mm -hmm. you're doing good. You're doing the right thing. And so we need that. So we need to be taking steps. We need to be making progress. And, um, and so that's so important. And this is not just metaphoric. It is literal, like stop avoiding and start moving. Yeah. Do something.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so people might think about avoiding and they might think, Well, what's wrong with, you know, a whole day or a couple of days of avoiding? They might think it's a net zero, but it's not a net zero. Right. And that's where it gets crazy because um you talked about if you deprive yourself of the positive, then you you lose out on those reward systems that you actually need in order to feel good and to and to maintain motivation and all yeah. the rest. So you deprive yourself of that, you lose those things. But also if you deprive yourself of that, what you're left with is the negative. So mm-hmm. even in the avoidance, even in the avoidance, the negative is yeah, still there gone, with you. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't go away. Yeah. So you can't escape it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so th- it ends up presenting the question of how do you tell the difference between rest and a Sabbath? Because we talked a little bit about how people who are practicing avoidance behavior might use those terms yeah. in order to justify it. And it is the case that we need rest. So when I think about this, I think, okay, well, rest would be productive towards what you're trying to do when you're in the positive, but mm-hmm. what are some ways to identify whether or not you're avoiding or whether you're resting?
1: Well, if, uh, it, it's, I think the the biggest sign is how do you feel at the end of it? So if you're sa- like my Sabbath is Friday, so on Fridays at the end of the day on Friday, how do I feel? If, if, Um, if I've just been avoiding, I'm probably not really going to feel that rested. Even if I laid on the couch all day long and didn't do a thing physically, I'm still not going to feel rested at the end of that. I'm still not going to feel life at the end of that. Um, but even if I was working in the garage or active, but still resting, you know, actually sabbathing did I just make up a word? I don't know. I'm gonna <laughs> Sabbath hard. Even if I'm Sabbathing hard, um, at the end of that, I'm gonna feel alive. I'm gonna feel invigorated. I'm gonna feel better. Um, and so, to me, that's that is uh, the biggest sign. At the end of it, how do you feel? At the end of it, what is your outlook? Um, because you can have you can take a, a week of vacation, but if you're demoralized, it's not going to produce life in you. Um, it's, you're not going to be better at the end of it. It's just going to be um, it's just going to be a week of inactivity. Right. And that is not the same.
0: Yeah. So the the possible mistake people could make is thinking that rest demands inactivity. And that if I'm like, okay, if I'm going to go work on my yard or work on my house or go do something that is conventionally thought of as work, then I must not be refueling, but that's not always the case. And and often it, it often, it's just not the case. And the inactivity is, is, not only is it not going to refuel you, refuel you, but you know, that's why you go to sleep at night. Like mm-hmm. that's that's what sleeping's for. It's, mm-hmm. it's if you're thinking in terms of like, okay, well, I need to be inactive or else I'm not going to be rested and I'm not going to uh, be able to crush the week. Well, why do you sleep? Right. I mean, that, and, and even then, sleeping, you're not totally inactive. I mean, it's the most one of the most inactive states you can be in. But at the same time, your body's doing all those things to repair itself and mm-hmm. and all this, and so. You know, you get that kind of rest every day if you sleep well. And if you don't sleep well, then that might be step one is trying to figure (laughs) that out. But,
1: um, okay. So
0: let's move to the next
1: point. Uh, number three was do what you can, but believe God will do the rest. And this goes back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier, as far as uh, losing hope for the future. And, um, and sometimes there's such a self-reliance, um, especially in our country, um, that we forget that there's, there's limitations on, our capacity on our, you know, on our um, results um, that ultimately God doesn't have. So we do whatever we can, and then we rest in the fact that God can make up the difference. Uh, that God is sovereign. He is good. That we can trust Him. Um, so we talked a little bit the other day about um, about how our brains are wired. And this is high level. This is not. We're not going to get in the weeds on this. But there's a couple different brain networks. It's the pathways and the pathways deal with like envisioning the future, the desired future, the desired outcomes. And so, um, when you are dreaming about like losing weight or you're dreaming about, I'd like my church to grow or whatever it is, you know, it's a, it's a possible outcome, a desired outcome, dream, a goal, whatever you, you would want to call it. And then there's agency. Uh, and this is the thinking that sustains the, I can do it. Um, and this is why gym memberships, um, are, sell like hotcakes and people go to the gym cause they have, um, they have this dream that I'm going to get healthy. Um, but then they don't, they can't sustain that. So the neural pathways, uh, the, the, yeah, the, the, the part of the brain, the agency that Is supposed to stay in that can't or won't. And so that's why people go to the gym for two weeks and then they never go again, right? Mm -hmm. First Mm -hmm. two weeks of January, are insanely busy at a gym. And then after that, (laughs) people stop going. That's where gyms make their money, right? Because there's this disconnect between believing we can and then actually doing it. And so, but we have to understand we have limitations as well, that there are some things we can't do no matter how uh, disciplined we are. There's some things we just can't do. And we've got to trust God to make up the difference in that.
0: Yeah. And if I think that if you approach work or if you approach ministry or life itself from the perspective of, well, if I can't do it, it's not going to get done. And I can do anything as long as I work hard enough and try to figure it out enough, you probably have a theological problem somewhere. (laughs) And like, and that's one of the things that, you know, we, theology is serious here. Mm -hmm. It's, It's super important. And if you get it wrong, I think you could end up, you know, Feeling completely hopeless like your agency doesn't matter and nothing mm-hmm. you do matters and it's you know entire sovereignty um of god right which you know may or may not be the case we won't go there but um i think especially among young men they have the temptation to feel like i can do anything if i work hard enough or if i just figure it out mm-hmm. well enough yeah and then what ends up happening is when you don't or when you fail all of the responsibility is on you. Even part of the responsibility you're not supposed to be shouldering. Yeah. And if you shoulder responsibility, if you shoulder the parts of life and the world that really belong to God, you're just not sufficient to handle that kind of thing. And so the, yeah. it's, yeah, super dangerous.
1: Yeah. I agree with that. Um, the fourth thing was find your people and pursue them. um, we, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but, um, it's isolating, you know, when you're demoralized, you feel like you're the only one dealing with it. Um, you, there's probably some shame, especially for pastors and leaders when we feel demoralized, cause we're not supposed to be demoralized. We're always supposed to have all the answers and we're always supposed to feel good. And right. Like that's the expectation. Um, but when we're demoralized, that's when we need people the most. Um, and so, you know, I, I've talked to our staff about the fact that I need people that are pouring into me. I need people that are leading me. So that's people like um, Jim Hennessy and John Nuzo and Gerald Brooks, people that are speaking into my life actively. I need peers, people that are walking with me that um, are dealing with the same things I'm dealing with, that I can pick up a phone and call. And not just can I pick up a phone and call them, but are they calling me? Like, those are friends. Uh, Because I've got lots of people I can call, but I know my friends are the people that will call me too. Um, and then I need people that I'm leading, that I'm pouring into. So I'm not just I'm not just collecting this, but I'm I'm a reserv I mean I'm not just a reservoir for it, but I'm a canal for it. I'm passing it along as well. So I'm helping people in different positions grow and develop as well. And the important thing is when we feel demoralized, not to wait to get a phone call because yeah, some of the yeah. people in my life are demoralized too. Right. And so I've got to take the initiative to reach out to them um, and to check on them and to let them know I love them, that I believe in them, that, you know, they need to hear that just as much as I do. So, mm-hmm. uh, and that's one of the problems is we just, we go, well, I don't feel like it. And if they really love me, they'd call me. And, yeah, you know, yeah. um, so I,
0: I think it's super valuable in these instances to trust in the power of conversation mm-hmm. and to understand that because it, it, it's so, it's such a basic, human thing that we can do. It's so f- it's so free to do yeah. that I think people sometimes associate free things with not having any value. Yeah. And they think, well, I need to buy a $50 self-help book that's going to teach me how to come out of this. Sometimes maybe you just need to have a good conversation yeah. and you know, exchange truth with someone mm-hmm. and bounce your thoughts off of them and get some feedback and find out whether or not your thoughts are crazy or whether or not they're accurate and that kind of thing. And like, when yeah. you, you surround yourself with these people, then you're able to do that. And you, you, you mentioned about having you know you have overseers you have spiritual fathers, spiritual authorities you have peers and then you have people who you're also mentoring and so you cover those conversations from three different perspectives there and you can you can observe yourself acting in each one you can observe yourself being spoken into and you can you have people who you can bounce ideas off of who have more experience and all those things and then you have peers that you can kind of uh maybe not compare yourself to, but at least see that there's someone else going through what you're going through right. at the same moment. And then you have people who you're mentoring, who you can see the product of your efforts, mm-hmm. like benefiting them. You know, you're yeah. able to speak into them and you're able to watch them grow and do better. And all that stuff is so important to this process of, you know, spiritual maturity and just mm-hmm. resisting demoralization. I think another one, and tell me what you think about this. I've been telling people lately um, if they have like a sin issue or they have something going on to assume nothing. Mm -hmm. And so what, what they have to do here is they have to observe themselves and watch out for assumptions. So whether it's assuming something about yourself, assuming something about the other person, assuming something about your pastor, assuming mm-hmm. something about your spiritual authorities, assuming something about the way this is going to play out. Mm-hmm. if you, Those assumptions will keep you trapped. Like th- yeah. that, th- th- that'll keep you in hiding. It'll keep you isolating. It'll keep you in shame and all that stuff. Um, often I think that there's something about us that assumes worse than what reality actually is. And I don't really know why we do that. Maybe because we're like loss averse. It might be something neurologically, but, but don't assume anything about a situation. And because you just, I guess, speak to the importance of not assuming. Do you, do you find yourself making assumptions like when you're just in the background? Yeah. I
1: think we default to that. And that's where, um, (laughs) that's where it's important. And and I don't know if you segued this way on purpose, but the last thing I was going to say was, um, you know, we have to be mindful of our thoughts and emotions. And one of the most important things that my counselor helped me do was just be more aware of my feelings and my thoughts and why I was feeling those things. Um, and, and yes, it's easy to default to the worst case scenario. It's easy to default to, these people left my church because they hate me. Or um, if I have this conversation with this person, if this person, if my peer knows that I'm struggling with this, I'm going to lose this relationship. You know, it's easy to default to that place. Um, but that's, again, where we, you know, Scripture says we take every thought captive, right? Like w- we say, okay, I this is my default uh, thinking, but I'm not going to stay there. I'm not going to allow myself to continue to think this way. What does the Bible say? What does God say? Uh, I want to bring my thoughts into alignment with what God things. I want to bring my heart into alignment with, you know, what God would have me feel. Um so I might feel this way naturally, but I'm not going to stay in that place. I'm not going to allow myself to 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 stay demoralized for a week. You know, like mm-hmm. I just won't do it. I'm yeah. going to you know, David said, "Awake my soul," right? And we talked about um Psalm 57 where he was in the cave of Adullam and he's his dreams seem to be gone. His future seems to be gone. And he's got all these people gathering with him that are a bunch of ragtag losers, debtors, people that are unhappy. Mm-hmm. This is his group. And in the midst of that, he says, but God, you're still good. God, I yeah. can still trust you. God, I know, I know you're going to take care of me. And like you haven't taken care of me yet, but I know you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he just says, I'm going to praise, I'm going to wake the dawn, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and the implication is I've, I've been awake all night worried about this, but I'm not going to stay in this place. Cause when the sun rises, the sun's going to rise to my praise, to my worship. And, and I think that's just a position we have to put ourselves in, especially as pastors to say, yes, I'm going to default to the worst at times. And yes, I'm going to bottom out at times, but I'm not going to stay there. I'm going right. to realign my thinking, realign my worship, realign my heart. Um, with what God has to say and what God wants to do.
0: And this is really useful too. like whenever, I mean, you've had, I'm sure plenty of instances where you've, you've run into people that you haven't seen for a while who are back in church and, um, you have to approach them and talk to them. And if you're able to resist making those assumptions, mm-hmm. then it makes those conversations easier. Yeah. And I think people are afraid to do it because they're afraid of being caught off guard by something. Maybe mm-hmm. that's what it is like they're Well, if, what if I go talk to this person and then I find out. Uh, that X is why they weren't yeah, here. They
1: really do hate my guts. Yeah. So yeah.
0: like, what, what does that feel like for you in practice? So pastors that are listening to this, who are maybe running into people at, at the grocery store or whatever, who used to be yeah. part of their church, how do they approach that conversation in the best possible way in terms of the health of the person they're talking to and the health of themselves?
1: Um, I, you know, you talked about assumptions, but I always try to assume the best, uh, like actively. Um, whenever, cause if, let me back up. If you pastor in a small town, you will run into the people who have left your church. It will happen. You're going to run to them at Walmart or the grocery store, the football game. You are going to see them. So you need to prepare for it beforehand. And the best thing to do is to assume the best about them, that they left your church under the best circumstances, even though most of the time we don't know why they left because they don't talk about it. They don't come tell us. They, they're just gone. And so I run into people all the time that have left our church. We've had enough people leave our church to start many churches in our area (laughs) if we wanted to, or to, you know, start a very large church. And so I run into these people all the time and usually I will greet them warmly. Hey, how are you doing? It's good to see you. How's your family doing? And then I will always ask the question, where are you guys going to church now? Um, Because I want them to know, number one, I know you're not in our church, Uh, And number two, my expectation is that you are going somewhere. And most of the time they will say, well, we're not really going anywhere now. Okay. Did something happen? Like, did we do something or, oh, no, 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 no. Cause I think even if it did, they're not going to spill it in the, you know, the cereal aisle. Right. Right, They're not going to be like, Yeah. yeah, you people. So no, no, everything's okay. Well, hey, we want you to be in church, even if it's not our church. Even if, if something happened and you're uncomfortable, man, you need to be in church, and, yeah. and and we would love for you to be back here. But if not, that's okay. But man, get in church. Your family needs. To. Yeah, you're right. Thanks so much. Yeah. And and me approaching it that way will help uh, diffuse some of the weirdness. Because they know they haven't been at church. And, you know, sometimes they're wondering, do they know I haven't been at church? Mm-hmm. And and so I think approaching it that way, just assuming the best and trying to love them and pastor them in that moment, you know, and try not to take anything personally, even though it's really, really hard not to take it personally, will help us pastor them even if they have left our church.
0: Yeah, so that's a, that's a crucial point, trying to love and pastor them in that moment. So the approach that you're describing, I feel like it implies – that, and this, uh, this, I think is a difference between the way you're thinking and maybe the way some other pastors might be thinking is like, just because the person's not here at our church anymore, doesn't mean that I don't have the right to ask them if they're how they're doing. And that I don't have the right to try to shepherd them in, in that moment and pastor them. And like, I think sometimes, um, I can't really speak from experience on this because I've never been in a lead pastor role of a church, but, uh, if a person leaves the flock, so to speak, mm-hmm. or leaves the congregation, there might be pastors who think, well, they're just not my subject yeah. anymore. They're not my yeah. person yeah. anymore. They're not some, someone who I am able to ask those questions to. But you don't approach people that way. Like you're, you're approaching them from the position of like they're still in need of Jesus, whether mm-hmm. they're here or not. Yeah. Like they, and so you have the confidence to be able to do that.
1: Yeah. And the second I find out if they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to such and such church. Like, man, I reaffirm their pastor. Man, you've got a great pastor. I love it. Make sure you stay involved. Make sure you stay connected. And at that point, it's that pastor's responsibility. Yeah. Um, But I'm assuming um, there's no problems, there's no issues, and you may not have a pastor. And I don't want to burn a bridge when they need one because maybe they left and they're just, maybe they got demoralized and left and they're shame because they know I haven't been at church in two years. Um, and you see them in the grocery store and if you treat them like you're being a jerk and like, well, they left our church and I don't, they're not mine. Maybe they want to come back, but they just need you to give them a kind word. And they need to know that, man, you're still loved. You're still accepted. We would love to have you back. Maybe that's all they need to hear to go, okay, I'm ready to come back. Right. Right. But if we approach it the wrong way, and then we're burning a bridge. So Yeah,
0: because they might have like a raft of assumptions when they see you, like, Absolutely. oh well, he doesn't like me anymore. I'm not welcome there, and then you break through all of that whenever yeah. you have that that conversation. And so and so the onus is on the pastor to
1: to open that door. Well, and we're, to, we're supposed to be the spiritually mature ones, right? And in all mm-hmm. throughout scripture we see the spiritually mature, Um, subject themselves to the spiritually immature. Like, we lay ourselves down for them. We make it easier for non-believers to come to church, right? Like, this is part of what we do. We give grace to people who have misunderstandings about scripture. We don't trash them. We, We treat them like a parent would a child in a lot of ways. So... I don't berate my kids when they were one learning to walk. I'm like, I've been walking for years. What's your problem? Right. (laughs) But we do that in the church all the time. But as pastors, we're supposed to be mature enough to extend a lot of grace. Yeah,
0: that's good. I think, I think we ran the gamut of your lecture. Were there any other points in that 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 you want to talk about? Yeah, there were five. Yeah. All right. I'm sure there's more, but that was
1: all I talked about.
0: This has been a really productive conversation and I I hope that this podcast finds you well. Um, And if it doesn't, then, and if you're if you're in that situation where you're demoralized, I hope you're able to pull something from it and it's able to help you out.
1: Hey, and let me say this. If you're a pastor listening to this and you recognize today, man, I'm demoralized. Um, and I don't have people. Like, I don't have a network. I don't have a denomination. I don't have a group. I don't care where you are nationally. Um, I want you to reach out to us. Let me know. Call our church offices here at Summit Church in Indiana, PA. Um, our website is summitpa.church. Shoot me an email. And I would love to connect with you and talk to you and and just help you any way I can. And maybe it's just helping you connect with some other pastors in your area, Uh, find a friend, whatever it might be. But but please, please, please don't deal with this by yourself. You need to find somebody and we want to help you.
0: Yeah, that's really good. Pastor Mel, thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you guys for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast. And we will see you in the next episode. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcasts.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.